Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, the Pope's historic visit of contrition to Canada. But is it enough? Ontario was supposed to have air conditioners in all long-term care homes by now, but that hasn't happened yet. We'll find out more. What can we do about an escalating weather situation in this country? And another allegation of group sexual assault involving Hockey Canada, and now Jim Canada is getting its funding suspended amid abuse allegations. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. One of the key events in Canada this week is now underway, and it'll continue all week long. It's the visit by Pope Francis to start reconciliation for the church's role in residential schools and the abuses and deaths that occurred. The church was not the only organization involved. Sarah Ryan of Global News has this report. After a lengthy ten and a half hour flight from Rome, the leader of the Catholic Church, Pope Francis, has arrived. Using the support of a wheelchair to relieve a strain on his ailing knee, the same one that's limited his mobility recently and led to the recent cancellation of a trip to Africa, Francis otherwise appeared well, smiling at those who came to greet him. Fittingly, the first to welcome the Pope to Edmonton was Canada's first Indigenous Governor-General, Mary Simon, followed by the Grand Chief of Alberta's Treaty 6 First Nations, George Arcan Jr., and then the Prime Minister. The latest step on the path to reconciliation, the reason for the Pope's visit, front and center. Grand Chief Arcand called the meeting humbling, adding he asked Pope Francis directly to walk with Indigenous Canadians on a new journey. Come in, talk and apologize to our survivors so that we could begin our journey of healing and that we can begin the opportunity to change the way things have been for our people for many, many years. Around 25 dignitaries were introduced to the Pope Sunday, including elders and residential school survivors. All are keenly aware of the church's role in the residential school system, all awaiting an apology on Canadian soil. It's a long time coming for the people that suffered in the schools, but I'm glad to, to live the day to, that I've seen it. Edmonton's mayor called the Pope's arrival a chance for the start of a new chapter. We should never be afraid to talk about what went wrong but with also with the, with the view that we need to move forward together to build a better future for all of us. Pope Francis, now 85 years old, was escorted through the hangar, surrounded by security, and into a small waiting fiat to be escorted into Edmonton, the first stop on his three-city papal visit. But on his first day in Canada, the Pope chose not to speak publicly, reserving his opening statement for Monday in Musquachis, where he'll apologize for the church's role in residential schools. When you own up to a wrong, that's when reconciliation can start. The Pope has arrived. Canadians across the country now wait to see if his presence here can help the healing begin. Sarah Ryan, Global News, Edmonton. And here to speak further about this is Dr. Lori Turnbull, Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Good morning, Lori. Good morning. Thanks for having me. This kind of a visit has never happened before. Yeah, um, this. I think there's a lot of expectation on this. There's a lot of anticipation. I think there's some some nervousness about it because there are different you know, there, there are people are in different places on this. I think some people are quite 
eager to hear what the Pope has to say and whether it's going to be any different from, uh, you know, what, what he said previously or if there's going to be some sort of action to come with this, like what exactly is going to be involved here. I think some are, are kind of eager and, and are, are quite engaged and looking, you know, looking to hear. And I think other people are finding this to be quite traumatizing and it's, it's difficult to, to do. And it can be both, right? Like you can, you can be quite eager to hear it, but at the same time, find it really hard. Well, you know, it was something that uh, I brought up. Uh, I was in conversation last week with Jean Charest on this show, and he has a new Indigenous uh, platform that is a part of his campaign to become leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And one of the first things I said to him was, why would anybody who is a First Nation in Canada believe anything we have to say? That's it, right? And it's you get to a point where the the reconciliation process has been what it has been. And, you know, it's hard to, like, where in that point do you build trust when you look at all the ways in which um, First Nations and Indigenous people have been let down and have been lied to? And it's hard for political leaders of, of any kind or church leaders, you know, to to be taken seriously when everything that's happened has happened. And so I think for, you know, if if... For some people, this moment, because it's this has never happened before, the Pope is here to make this apology um, on Canadian soil, but but you know at a residential school at, in a First Nation. Like he, if he's doing all that, is this a sign that this is different? That things are going to be different? And what does this say about what's happening in Canada? Right? Because after he does this, like he's going to be here for the week, I think, but then he leaves. And so you know, how does this actually change anything on the ground? Well, and then that's it. It wasn't just the Catholic Church. You know, there were successive Canadian governments that were part of what happened here. There were other church groups that were involved in the setup of different residential schools. So there's there's a lot of reconciliation to go around. Yeah, and that's been a point that that's that I think has been really important because even if governments take the step of of um, you know being present for for new steps in reconciliation and saying they are on this journey and they're taking concrete steps toward it, that doesn't, that doesn't really account for the Catholic Church's role in it, which was significant. And so there has been a lot of expectation that the Church is going to come forward and take some kind of ownership of this. But again, what will that mean, right? Like, is it going to be an apology and the words of the apology? Or is there going to be some sort of action taken? Can there be action taken? What would that look like? And I th- I would have to think that when it comes to going back to that question of building trust, that taking steps that, that will actually change something would be a more meaningful way of building that trust than just the words. But that said, um, you know, if, if, you're, if there's going to be a first step in something, this is a step. And I think that a, a lot of ears will be focused on what what possible you know differences is there are there between this and what the pope has said in rome and is there going to be a process how is he engaging with political leaders like what might this actually mean we're we're speaking with dr laurie turnbull who's director of the school of public administration with dalhousie university uh laurie i was raised as a catholic and a big part of the sacrament of of reconciliation is an act of contrition we may see the Pope's visit here as part of an act of contrition, but um, when, you, when you make a confession or you go through the Sacrament of Reconciliation, it has to be thorough and complete. It has to be open. You can't hold anything back. 
And one of the things that I really want to see is some move on a return of artifacts that were taken and on the Vatican archives. Whatever documents they have about what happened at residential schools needs to be turned over. Oh, my God, that's such a good point. And yes, uh, full disclosure, I was raised Catholic. I, I do not practice in any way, but I was raised Catholic, too. And you're right. I can remember going through that particular sacrament and the it, the and, it, and you do it over, over and over again. If you are a practicing Catholic, you you're supposed to do this regularly. And I think they this church even did away with the general absolution, right? Like you're supposed to go and do this act of contrition on your own, take full accountability, as you say, be completely transparent. And so now this sacrament is being put on the church. And, you know, it, it is it's time for the church to be contrite and very much on the shoulders of this Pope to act on behalf of the church in doing so. And so his own role in it, you know, the extent to which he, he is able to communicate this on behalf of the church is a complex thing, obviously, because he's one person, but he's the top. And so when you're talking about organizational accountability, which is always a very complex thing, it's going to be very hard to achieve that if the person who's at the top of the organization doesn't basically own it. And so, you know, we'll see, we'll see what he does today. And, and the church has already come up short on the fundraising uh, for the settlement that it had promised. I think there's like four million of the 25 million that had been promised. Yeah. And so, I mean, when it comes to actually um, making taking steps that are concrete and putting your money where your mouth is, so to speak, right? Like that's a significant piece. And so I think there's going to be like, in some ways, this is just going to open the conversation today. There will be pressure on the church to continue in some sort of way that is, that is again, taking steps and actually um, doing what it can to, to try to build some kind of trust again and to try to take real account for what has happened and there's going to be, again, there's going to be people who are listening, and there's going to be people, it's just too late. And, you know, this this is what it is. Well, I think something that really needs to be remembered here is how much this is actually about helping residential school survivors and day school survivors and First Nations mm-hmm. peoples in general heal. This is This is about their healing. It's not really so much about rehabbing the church's image. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, but I mean, for when I think about it, I'm just like, I don't know if the church, in my own view, I don't know if the church's image is, is ever going to be rehabbed. I kind of doubt it. I, and, but that's a whole other story. At this point, yes. I mean, like, the, the emphasis is absolutely on what can there be in terms of, of a Catholic church role, if anything, in, in their own accountability and how that can contribute to the healing process. Which, you know, as I think for even from the perspective of governments, they, they are at a loss in determining what what can be done and being able to to actually take the steps to do it. But I think, I mean, if we see the Pope today, I think there's a lot riding on what he says, how he conducts himself. And I think there's a limit, though, to what effect that will have. I think it's it's going to be, you know, going forward, what whether or not this really changes anything and whether or not it creates a different kind of mood so that that healing, as you say, can can move in earnest. Do you think Canadians are at a turning point here? I mean, we, we um, saw a huge outpouring of empathy uh, yeah. when the stories were breaking at the different residential school sites across the country. We started to really understand how big this situation was of, of kids um, being in unmarked graves at these schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm just wondering if, if we're starting to see a change in attitude and a change of understanding. 
I think that there's a change in attitude. I think there's a change of knowledge and awareness. I think there's also um, more of a public dialogue that is not only affecting adults, but is affecting children. So if you if you have a child who's going to school, as I do, you know, she she has conversations with her teachers, with her classmates about what about what the residential school system was like and and how horrific. And, you know, at, and so I think we are having the conversations as a country in a way that we didn't, you know, say five years ago, 10 years ago. However, um, even with all that knowledge and awareness, is anything really changing is does that move anything? Does it change the result of an election? Are politicians being held to account meaningfully for their stances on reconciliation? I don't know. I don't really have any, if, if I had to provide proof of that, I don't think I could. Because I think that there's just so, you know, when, when you're a voter and you make your decision at the ballot box, if you show up at all, and as we saw in the last provincial election here in Ontario, most people didn't, that is a lack of accountability. That's a lack of accountability on every issue. When you see most people not showing up to vote, it means the politicians aren't being held to account for really anything. But do I think they're being held to account on Indigenous reconciliation? Absolutely not. Yeah. It is interesting, though, that at least Jean Charest has made it a part of his uh, his platform um, yep. when he's seeking um, to be the leader of the Conservative Party. I thought that was interesting. I've also seen a change in attitude in this area. Uh, you may have heard that there are a few land claims issues in this area, yep. uh, a lot uh, dealing with land around Caledonia that's being developed. And between the situation about 12 years ago and one more recently, there has been a greater understanding among some people in Caledonia that maybe, maybe we ought to take a look at some of these issues. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I think at the community level, yes, there, you know, when when things like happen, things happen like a land claim, like a, a dispute, like that, um, people can respond to that because they start to see it in a different way. It's not a political conversation that's happening away from them. It's something that's actually playing out in their day to day life. And therefore, they relate to it differently. And they can see how it affects you know, you're, the people close to you, your neighbor, your community, like it starts to have, it gets into your brain in a different way. And it causes a different kind of accountability because you can't look away from it. You have to actually look at that and say, yeah, this is an issue that we have to solve here. But I do think um, it's going to be a challenge. I mean, you, you, you refer to Jean Charest and yeah, like he's, he's got this in his platform. And even if he doesn't win, it could have the effect of changing the conversation. But there's a, a real challenge, I think, for political leadership and political parties these days in their attempt to try to grasp the issues that are really important to Canadians and actually provide some sort of solution to them or some sort of roadmap for how to try to deal with it. And I think Canadians are often finding that political parties and leadership are not providing those things that they want to hear. And so there's a disconnect. And rather than, you know, punishing and choosing another person, a lot of people are just not showing up at all. And one can't be blamed in some way for saying like that process isn't working at all. Traditional politics are not providing solutions to the kinds of complex problems we have. And so I think there's a relationship there between, you know, increasing problems and voter turnout and voter engagement and the fact that we have these, these massively complex problems that seem to, to continue to weigh us down. Yeah. They, they will ignore this at their peril, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Lori, thank you so much for your time. Anytime. Take care. You've given us a good idea and uh, a few ideas of what we should be listening for over the course of this week. We'll see if that happens. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. While we may have slightly lower heat and humidity today, the summer is not nearly over, and it isn't done with extremes yet. For most of us, it was unpleasant enough, but for those in long-term care... It can be dangerous, if not deadly. And Ontario is not the only province that's dealing with this. Paul Brunet is an advocate for those with disabilities in Quebec. When you have someone residing in a room where it is 35, 37, it is dangerous. So it's not only a matter of comfort, it's a matter of security. There's no excuse, no excuse at all for not providing adequate uh, adequate uh, refreshing air or air conditioning to those people. It is very insulting. Ontario's Ministry of Long-Term Care says there are still 90 homes in this province that are not fully air-conditioned, despite legislation that requires all homes to have it. The ministry said as of last Tuesday, 537 out of 627 long-term care homes do not have air-conditioning units installed in all rooms. As temperatures across this province soared into the 30s, Humidex values reaching almost 40 degrees. And that is up by eight homes since late June, but it still leaves 98 homes that are without. It's something that has been on the radar of Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, co-founder of Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards, and she's also a professor at Ontario Tech University. Uh, Vivian, what is your reaction? i just really disappointed, really disappointed. This shouldn't be happening still. And it's just, um, it's unforgivable, frankly. My uh, former mother-in-law, she's passed away. She was in a long-term care home, but it was a more modern facility. It was also a not-for-profit facility. Yeah. Is there a difference yeah. between uh, the yeah. those who have are run for profit and those that are not? Yeah, <laughs> yes, there is. And like everything that we have very clearly documented throughout this pandemic, and and the literature demonstrates as well before, there is a you know on a variety of different outcomes from patient mortality to hospitalizations, preventable injuries, for-profits consistently fail compared to the non-for-profits, and particularly that the clear winners are the non-profit municipal homes. So there's three different areas of ownership, private for-profit, private not-for-profit, and then the public or municipal homes, which are, are the, the clear winners. So again, we just found out very recently, um, and I thank Christina Teneglia for getting this info from the ministry, that uh, of the you know 90 homes that are still without air conditioning 57 57 of those which is 63 percent are indeed for profit again which is completely inexcusable given that last year you know over 60 million was given to these facilities to do these upgrades and as we see time and time again the for profits consistently fail to use the resources to do what is required of them and why because there's no accountability they get a slap on the wrist and they get okay try better next time meanwhile knowing that seniors can die from extreme heat. And that gentleman that from Quebec that you just played before I came on, hit that point home. This is not about comfort. This is the fact that heat-related illness is deadly among older adults. And we have the well-known data because elderly have multiple comorbidities, they have poor circulation and difficulty sweating to start with, and side effects from multiple medications that compound the risks of heat exhaustion and heat stroke. So this is not just comfort. This is the fact that older adults living in these facilities are at risk for death because of heat in the 21st century in Ontario. I mean, are you kidding me right now that this is still happening, that this is a risk? It's important. Well, and also, you know, along with everything that you had cited about comorbidities and uh, and, and higher risk 
depending on what kind of medication this person is requiring, what sure. if those what of those who can't communicate and they don't 100%. realize that they have heat related yeah. issues? Well, the, and not just that. But I also have additional data that shows that older adults living in long-term care homes are more likely to be dehydrated in the first place than those living in the community. And this is precisely because they have, you know, extensive needs and assistance and they require extensive assistance with drinking and eating. And when you add on top of this that we have, you know, existing short staffing in this sector, it just further increases the risk of dehydration and heat stroke, right? Who is monitoring for heat-related illness, particularly when, as you said, residents can't can't properly communicate what is happening to them, which is a, a significant issue in long-term care. Remember, the majority of these residents have dementia, right? So the, the, who is there if we don't have proper staffing to begin with to actually monitor for signs of heat-related illness? Well, that It's was, just not happening. Well, that was one of the points that uh, I wanted to make on this. There isn't proper, yeah. proper staffing, perhaps not at every yeah. long-term care home, but a number of them don't have enough yeah. staff to, to check for, you know, all of the other basics, let yeah, alone. Exactly, exactly, right? Are they checking for high body temperature? Are they checking for changes in behavior like agitation, confusion, delirium? Are they checking for dry flush? Are they checking for fainting, loss of consciousness, lack of sweating? Give me a break. We know it's not happening. We barely have enough staff just to provide the basic care. Uh, They are running around frantic to this day trying to assist because the majority, again, and as we talked about earlier, there is data that shows that it is the for-profits that are consistently understaffed compared to, for example, the municipal homes. So we already know that, you know, chronic short staffing is an issue in this sector to begin with. But again, it varies by ownership. So, you know, not only do we know, that the majority of these homes are for profit that have failed to upgrade these these homes, um, the 90 that remain. But on top of it, we also know that they're the ones with that are more likely to be short staffed. So, I mean, this is this is a deadly, deadly situation that we can we see the writing on the wall. We see the situation coming close to what happened in B.C. last year, where in one week period during an unprecedented heat wave, over 800 individuals die from heat stroke. And of those 80 percent of those 800, over 80 percent were seniors living in unventilated suites. Right. Not unlike the seniors here living in unventilated, non-air conditioned suites in these long term care homes. So, I mean, we are literally watching the, the, the death situation ahead of us unfolding, knowing that this is very dangerous and still seeing our minister of long term care, who is largely missing in action, you know, make comments like, oh, yeah, it's a priority only after. It becomes a scandal in the news because people like myself and other advocates raise, you know, the alarm bells that, hello, here we are, another heat, you know, another heat wave coming. Who is actually paying attention to what's going on in long-term care? Doesn't seem to be our minister. So that's comforting. Well, one of the things that you mentioned in terms of, uh, you know, who is checking to see uh, for some of the um, uh, symptoms of heat-related illness, one of them is confusion. And I wonder how many of these um, uh, symptoms that that's actually heat related illness just get wound up folded into you know well this person has dementia so yeah, of course that, they're going course. to be confused of course and that's an added risk which is why you need to check for the other symptoms as well right like the high body temperature the dry flush skin you know the potential loss of consciousness you really have to be you know on the ball and frankly unfortunately with the revolving door of workers who get thrown into these facilities they don't have proper training on dementia in the first place let alone on signs of heat stroke. 
and how to deal with these individuals and how to be able to see the signs, right? And not just the fact that, you know, these issues alone. I also want to point out that I hear from staff who near faint in these facilities, having to work in these conditions in full PPE, because keep in mind, for-profit facilities are more likely to be an outbreak. We've seen this consistently throughout the outbreak, throughout the pandemic. And we also know right now that since June 29th, outbreaks in long-term care have more than tripled. So, you know, and, and Paul Calandra, Mr. Minister, said himself when finally the media were able to track him down for comment because he declined several times to other reporters that, that I am in communication with. Um, he made a point of saying that, you know, it's not only, quote unquote, supply chain issues that are preventing these upgrades. OK, um, but COVID-19 outbreaks. So he admitted that himself. So, you know, that outbreaks are on the rise. You know that some of these homes, particularly for profits, are still failing. What are you doing about it? Where is the accountability? What's going to happen when the next heat wave hits? And we know it's just around the bend. What's the plan, Paul? I would love to be able to ask that or have anyone with a direct path to him to ask him, what's the path? What is going to happen when the next heat break happens? Are you actually giving them another deadline? Are they going to be hit with financial penalties for not actually reaching the deadline of last month of June 22nd? What, where's the accountability? What is actually being done to make sure, you know, to light the fire under these bad actors to get the job done? Because I don't see anything. Love to know what that is. Vivian, one of the things that they were saying is that in some of these homes that may not have an air conditioner in every single room or centralized air conditioning in the rooms, there are cooling areas where they can go and spend the day. We're in outbreak. We've got a seventh wave of COVID. Exactly. Not only are you in outbreak and you're confined to your rooms, and I'm hearing this from families. I mean, these, these residents, you know, are having a hard time even walking down the halls or getting outside. And if they want to get, you know, just a break from their bedrooms... Uh, you know, but furthermore, the, the, the cooling area nonsense was nonsense from the beginning. And I talked about this consistently because the majority of residents, especially those that are two person transfers, right, which means you need two, two people to help require them because they have significant issues with mobility. They can't walk properly. Right. Um, and we already know one person transfers people that just need help with one staffer are in a you know, precarious situation because of the short staffing. Two person transfers are notoriously known to get even further substandard care because there's just not of staff. And if, and if they need help, then, you know, the people, unfortunately, that need the most care in these facilities and, and they need the most help getting to a, a quote unquote cooling station are not going to get there because there's not enough staff to get them there. So that was offensive in the first place. And, you know, I, it made me want to blow my roof like a cartoon character where the fire comes out of the head when you're sitting here parading out a common area cooling. When, when first of all, if you can get there, you only get it for one to two hours a day. Great. What about the other 22 hours, 23 hours? And Bupkis? Get out of here with this. It's just nonsense. We're in conversation with Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, who is a co-founder of Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards. She's also a professor at Ontario Tech University. Now, the Ministry of Long-Term Care, and I know you've heard this already, but the ministry has said that there are supply chain issues affecting air conditioning unit delivery timelines. And uh, they've also said there are other problems like visitor restrictions that have prevented contractors <laughs> from getting into the home. Give me a break. You know, just, it's just give me a break. It's all excuses, in my opinion. It's all nonsense. You've had two years. What are you waiting for? 
I, you know, this is the same story, the same dance all the time, right? You never properly fix an issue. You kick the problem further down the road. You kick the can down the road. And it's just, frankly, it's irritating to me at this point. So sorry if I sound like I've hit my level because it's just having to constantly talk about the, the problems that never get fully fixed kind of weighs on me from time to time. So um, yeah, sorry if you can hear that in my voice, but it's just nonsense. Um, Vivian, one of the other things I was thinking of when they were talking about, well, you know, there are visitor restrictions and, you know, contractors, you know, can only come in uh, in certain numbers at certain times. If you have these cooling areas, which you have said are substandard and not good enough and certainly were an outbreak. But if you have these cooling areas, that means the room is open. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's nonsense. And furthermore, there, there's always been allowances in the literature, in the literature, sorry, in the policy, in you know, the Ontarian policy for access to these long-term care homes. They've always let in contractors and, you know, emergency workers. So what are you talking about visitor restrictions? You're not having random people come in, you know, from off the street to give you a Dyson. This is not how it's working. You've always had allowances for contractors. And, and emergency workers to come in and do the work. So I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Why don't you ask them, well, what about the contractors that have been coming in the last two years during outbreak? What about them? Well, oh, but now it's a problem? Come on. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about this is because we received uh, an email uh, in our newsroom from a woman who is in the Niagara region. Um, and the nursing home that her mother is in is listed on the ministry site as having air conditioning in the residence rooms. And boy, does she beg to differ. Because wow. uh, the uh, the room that her mother is in uh, yeah. basically had uh, the door open, trying to draw cool air in from the hallway. Uh, she also had a choice. Uh, so it was a choice between privacy and some slight relief from the heat. Uh, they also had a bit of a fan for her, which actually they provided. Um, and her mother's room was 82 degrees the previous oh morning that she sent this email to us. The door was open and the fan was running but it would only get warmer over the course of the day. It's just ludicrous. So first of all, we know that there's a consistent issue with, you know, the quality of data in the sector, and it's not even made public. So we have to, you know, beg media to then go to the ministry to get the information that we do get. Forget if we didn't solicit it, we'd never get it. But we don't have good public data for long-term care. We should. It would help make these homes more honest because certainly, and I would, I would be paying attention and drawing out the bad actors, but we don't have that, right? And then furthermore, is the data even accurate? Is Minister Calandra even making sure that these homes, like this poor this poor woman who wrote to you, why why is the home saying, you know, their home saying that they are air conditioned, but then this is happening? And furthermore, you know, we heard a, a situation out of tender care, which was you know the biggest mass casualty in long term care history, with over eighty deaths during you know one extended outbreak over the last Christmas period, um, a home in Scarborough here. And, you know, they, quote unquote, have air conditioning, but it broke down. And there was a story that came out. This, the, you know, this poor daughter was talking about her mother was literally sweating to death in these rooms. So what do you do in those situations, right? When there is no backup plan for when these facilities have, you know, breakdowns. And why are, uh, it's just, you kind of, you, you almost want to throw your hands up and say like, well, where's, Who's actually in charge of this sector? Who's making sure that the data is accurate, that we're actually you know, following through with upgrades and money that you're giving these facilities to do the work? Is there a backup plan for if things like this happen? I mean, or are we just sitting here, you know, flying by the seat of our pants, hoping that we can figure it out as it happens, which is not going so well, as you can see. 
Well, one of the thoughts that I had in light of this email that was sent to us uh, and within my own family's experience of having people in long-term care, we have a family member who's in long-term care right now. What about those people who are patients who don't have family members to advocate for uh, them? Well, this is it. And this is what I have been really worried about right now is that I, I, in my heart of hearts, I do think that we have lost seniors to heat exhaustion for sure over the last two years, but we don't know about it. And not only do we not know about it because you know, that these might be individuals who don't have family nearby or don't have family at all that are that are here to raise the red flags. Because keep in mind, it's family, it's the essential caregivers, and I've done research on this directly, that are the eyes and the ears of these residents. And generally, when they are around, they're the ones making sure that they're actually okay and that these homes, they're trying to keep these homes honest in the absence of an honest sector. Let's be real here. And, and that's my biggest fear is that these poor individuals that are on their own with no one to advocate for them, what is happening to them? And if they did die, do we even know about it? Because we have notorious issues and, and we had cutbacks in the investigation of deaths in long-term care by the coroner's office. So we're not even properly, we, we're not investigating these deaths like we used to. And this has been written about over the past two years. And, you know, the, the government knows about this and hasn't done anything to, because they wanted to, you know, cut costs. This is why these, the, the mandatory one of every 10 deaths in long-term care used to be investigated and they scrapped that to cut costs back in 2013. But you'd think after the Wetlawfer murders that we would bring that back, right? And especially what happened during COVID, we would bring that back because clearly there has been many, many, many claims of preventable negligent, negligible deaths. And yet we still don't have a proper mechanism in place for investigating these deaths. And, and, and I do think that they probably we have probably lost seniors in, in our long-term care sector, but we'll never know about it. Well, I mean, part of the statute is that home operators need to ensure a home's heat-related illness prevention and management plan is developed in accordance with regulatory requirements. <laughs> yada yada yada. That's putting it on the operator. Yeah, and, and how's that worked out so far? How's that worked out so far? Not great. We we, we expect these operators to operate in good faith when we have clear evidence all throughout the pandemic, that that doesn't necessarily happen. And you cannot put the trust in these facilities and the operators, the majority of which are for-profit, whose main fiduciary responsibility, first and foremost, is to dole out profit to their shareholders and to their CEOs. It is not, you know, their main regulational, let's say, responsibility is not to provide the most appropriate and and top-notch care because that costs money and profits cut into providing appropriate care, right? And, and I mean, you know, this is not my opinion. This is well-documented in the international and national literature. So, you know, this is frankly lunacy that we are just offloading the responsibility onto these individual operators to do the right thing when we have clear and pressing and glaring evidence that time and time again, they don't. If people want to see some move and change happen on this front, uh, what can people do to make sure that, that it's heard and that change does occur? You know, the thing that really sucks about this sector, and, and people have written about this too, is that it takes scandals for any needle to move, right? So my advice is always to families, reach out to the media, reach out to me, get it, get it known, get it out there, because unfortunately you got to name and shame sometimes because that's the only way that these operators actually feel the pressure to do something. And, and it's sad that this is the state we're in, but you know, I've been living this for, for two plus years now and I have seen firsthand 
that that is how you get the needle to move. Because if we just stopped talking and we didn't say anything, I'm, I'm scared to think what would be the state of long-term care right now. Well, boomers get out and vote and the generations that follow get out and vote. Um, and really, you need to move on this now because it's not going yeah. to be too long before those groups start moving into long-term care needs. Yeah, you know, and I've always said, and it really, it's really disappointing to see the lack of foresight and individuals generally, you know, everyone I talk to realizes the problem and is is invested. But again, you know, I have a little bit of a um, group of people who reach out to me deliberately because they have this expertise and experience, lived experience with long-term care. But for everyone else, you know, I just kind of sit here and I shake my head and I think this is going to be you at some point. If you think, you know, and every single person thinks, oh, I'm never going to end up in long-term care until you do. And I have, you know, I've looked at this from a sociodemographic perspective. You, the odds are that more than ever, our individuals now in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s are going to need long-term care, far more institutional long-term care, as much as we hate it, far more than any other population before it, yeah, for get, many reasons. Get in touch with your uh, your MPPs and, and put the yeah. pressure on. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos is co-founder of Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards. She's also a professor at Ontario Tech University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We may be getting a little bit of a respite from the latest heat wave, but we still have lots of summer to go, and the heat and humidity will inevitably climb. We've been warned that heat waves will continue and intensify as a result of climate change. A new report has found billions of people around the world will need access to air conditioning as extreme heat accelerates due to climate change. Here's Inez de la Catera. Researchers from the Harvard China Project delving into the future demand of air conditioning say they've discovered there is a major gap between current AC capacity and what will be needed by 2050 to save lives, especially in low-income and developing countries. AC is a luxury in many places, with only 8% of the 2.8 billion people living in the hottest and poorest places on Earth having access to it. Scientists say the extreme heat the world is witnessing this week may seem mild compared to what it could look like in 30 years if global emissions aren't reduced. Inez de la Quatera, ABC News, Paris. A lot of work is being done and a lot of research is being done closer to home on this very issue at the Intact Center on Climate Adaptation at the University of Waterloo. The head of that center is joining us now, Dr. Blair Feltmate. Thank you so much for taking time this morning. Well, thank you very much for having me. Your center has said that Canadian alarm bells should be ringing loud and clear by now, but it seems we're still not really prepared for what's to come. That's right, and we're, uh, if for lack of a better descriptor, perhaps we're 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 just catching up, or really starting to appreciate the degree to which extreme heat uh, is problematic now, and will be more problematic in the future, uh, driven by climate change. Uh, very often, when people t- talk about climate change, or when we think about climate change, people tend to think about flooding, and wildfires in in forested regions. But when things go wrong relative to flooding and wildfires, uh, it's financially very expensive and inconvenient. But by and large, people don't die. It might be zero, one, two, three, perhaps four people die in a flood or a fire, which not to be indelicate would be four too many. But when things go wrong relative to extreme heat, uh, people can die in very high numbers. Um, For example, in 2021 in British Columbia, 619 people died prematurely due to extreme heat. And then in 2018 in Quebec, 86 people died prematurely due to extreme heat. And by the way, under both of these circumstances, 
people died under good conditions. The electricity was running. Had the electricity gone out and there had been no fans and air conditioning running during either of these heat waves, those deaths would have been in the, the high hundreds and, and potentially into the thousands. So extreme heat is problematic and, it's, and, it, and things are going to get hotter going forward, period, driven uh, through irreversible climate change. Should air conditioning be considered a basic human right, like water, food, and heat? I believe so. The, uh, the same way we consider it a basic human right, that people should have access to uh, warmth and, uh, uh, during the winter months and be safe relative to midwinter temperatures. The, um, now, with extreme heat, I think it's very reasonable to think that people should have access to cooling. And, it's, and as per the numbers that I just listed a, a few minutes a minute ago, the, uh, it's, not, it's not just a matter of comfort, it's actual safety. It's, it's uh, in the absence of, of air conditioning, uh, people can die. In, in terms of the heat, has your centre been able to do any uh, number crunching about what the next summers are going to be looking like? Yes. Um, as, as, as a general trend across the country, over the period of the next 30 years, for most major cities from west to east in Canada, uh, the maximum daily temperatures will go up uh, uh, over about the next 30 years by 3 to 5 degrees Celsius. So if you, if, uh, um, for example, right now in Hamilton, you top out at around uh, 35 degrees Celsius. That's, that's more or less as hot as it gets. Uh, by 2050, that will go to 39 degrees Celsius. Um, and then um, for the number of hot days per summer, over 30 degrees Celsius, the number of hot days per summer over 30 will uh, increase by a factor of two to four times as many days per summer over 30 degrees Celsius over the next um, 30 years. And just if you're interested for Hamilton, right now you experience about 16 to 17 days per summer over 30 degrees Celsius. By 2050 to 2060 range, that will go to 64 days per summer. It's actually going to quadruple in the Hamilton area, the number of hot days over 30 degrees Celsius. So the heat is coming. That many days at that temperature, that is summer. We won't be getting any respite. That's correct. And so we, 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 we have to prepare now. There are particular groups within society that are particularly vulnerable to extreme heat, and we have to work to protect them. And it's, uh, for example, for you and myself, uh, the extreme heat might be a, a bit uncomfortable when you're uh, traveling between you know, your your home and your work or something like that. But we, you know, for many of us, we have access to air conditioning. But there's a great many of people who don't, and it's these people that uh, we have to put systems in motion now to protect them. And the, and the three groups, by the way, are the elderly, uh, generally speaking, people living over seventy, uh, are people who are over seventy years of age, living alone. Uh, perhaps in the back of a room, a rooming house somewhere of limited financial means. Uh, this is a group for which we should be ahead of the heat waves, mapping out where are they in 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 cities, and then set up roving teams to check on them on a on a regular basis, twice a day during a heat wave to see do they have a fan working, do they have AC, are they properly hydrated, uh, if they're in harm's way, can we give them a ride to a cooling center, uh, that sort of thing. The other group that's vulnerable are the homeless, and we need roving teams set up in cities to check on the homeless during heat waves to make sure they're hydrated and they know where the cooling centers are, or perhaps they may need a ride to a cooling center. And then we have people with 
pre-existing health conditions. They may be respiratory or, or cardiac in nature. Uh, we need to launch for cities extreme heat amber alerts to notify these people and, and others to set the uh, systems in place that I just mentioned into motion. We need extreme heat amber alerts such that uh, for people with pre-existing health conditions that might otherwise find themselves in harm's way when the extreme heat hits, they can put themselves somewhere where it's, it's cool and they're, 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 they're safe. So this should be, these systems should be uh, set up now. And then there's changes in physical infrastructure in, in uh, cities. We need more tree canopy within cities to provide more shading. Uh, so the, the benefits that are obvious. And then uh, physical structures need to be changed. For example, if you flew into Hamilton right now or Toronto airport or any large city basically, and you look down at the apart the roofs of apartment buildings, factory, shopping malls, and so forth. You'll see that almost universally, the roofs of these buildings are 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 black. They're dark tar, and when sunlight hits that dark surface, um, only about twenty uh, percent of that energy radiates back up into the space, into space, and the rest of the energy stays in the system, contributing to heating. But simply by painting the roofs of buildings white, and having lighter colored pavements. Uh, making it such that when electric, when uh, sunlight hits the bright white surface of a roof, 80% of that elect of that heat will now radiate into space, and only 20% stay in the system. That will contribute contribute to a relative cooling effect to diminish the otherwise the heat island effect of urban areas. So there's there's a, a number of initiatives we can take, relative behavioral in nature, green infrastructure in nature, built infrastructure in nature to to make cities a little bit safer relative to extreme heat. We're speaking with Dr. Blair Feltmate, who's head of the Intact Center on Climate Adaptation at the University of Waterloo. You know, when you were talking about uh, the roofs of buildings uh, being mostly dark to black, and uh, that just makes the, the whole situation warmer, one of the things I was thinking of was what we heard last week from Europe, where runways were buckling, um, some of them were melting. They had to pour water on the course for the Tour de France because it was melting. And I heard the term liquefied roads, which I've never heard before. Well, yeah. So all of the, all of the things you just mentioned, you know, these are very real and they're on our doorstep today. But what we have not done a good job of in Canada right now is to look even more broadly at fundamental infrastructure and how it may be impacted by extreme heat or will be impacted by extreme heat. And that's everything from different sectors of the transportation uh, area, uh, roads, railways, airports. It's uh, everything from uh, telecommunications equipment, uh, uh, water processing plants, water treatment facilities, all the fundamental things that you need to make a city work. We should be doing a systematic review of uh, what are the key vulnerabilities relative to extreme heat and and uh, put systems in place now if we can to, to try and correct those measures. And by the way, even in areas such as healthcare, for example, and emergency services, during the heat wave in, in British Columbia last summer, what they found is that they were in dire need of, and now they've put the system in place to replace these, uh, to bring more people to the table, but they need it more paramedics, they needed more dispatchers to deal with 911 calls that come in during heat waves, and they needed more ambulances in the province to, to deal with the, 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 these threats. 
But every single industry sector should be going through a process of examination to identify its vulnerabilities relative to extreme heat. And if it turns out that in certain sectors there's no real problem, well, at least then we know. We're not guessing. But for those that new, do need uh, attending to, then uh, we can prepare. Well, one of the things that uh, is on uh, the list under green infrastructure of uh, things that we can do now that will give us benefits later on. And that's creating or expanding a vegetative area around waters and lakes. You know, we live on the shore of, of Lake Ontario, and while I see a lot of structural buildup there, mostly, you know, around lakes big and small. Yes, uh, for sure, we should be working to retain and restore uh, natural infrastructure and communities. So the, the forests, the fields, the wetlands that were originally there, what can we do to retain them and or restore them? And by the way, uh, in southern Ontario, over the course of the last 100 years, we've removed approximately 73% of the original infrastructure that was here, the forests, the fields, the wetlands. That's now gone. It's either paved over or turned into uh, some form of development, or it's been converted to agricultural land. And uh, when extreme weather occurs, and it's not just uh, uh, heat, uh, but also when... um, uh, major precipitation events occur, flooding, uh, remo- having the natural infrastructure removed from the land, natural the the uh, the landscape that contributes to to, to flood impacts. Uh, when water comes down in droves and hits pavement, it's got nowhere to go and observe, uh, absorb and discharge over time. It runs off instantaneously and contributes to flooding. So, by retaining natural infrastructure, it it diminishes the heat island effect. It helps mitigate flood risk. It supports biodiversity, and it just improves the general aesthetics and communities. So for a whole bunch of reasons, we want to retain natural infrastructure. Well, and you were citing uh, earlier a couple of examples involving uh, what happened in B.C. last year with hundreds, over 500 deaths attributed to the heat. Uh, And we all learned the new meteorological term of a heat dome. Is that possible in this part of of Canada, uh, happening in southern Ontario? Yes, absolutely. And the uh, right now, uh, British Columbia has put a system in place to launch extreme heat amber alerts. But this is nothing peculiar that uh, to BC that we can only have extreme heat there. That just happens to be where they got it unlucky last summer. Uh, but that heat event could have been in Manitoba. It could have been in Ontario. It, it could have been in New Brunswick. So we uh, we should have a system set up, put in place in this country rapidly. Uh, to put out these uh, e- extreme heat alerts in the form of an amber alert that people just don't sort of slough it off like it's, it'll be so that it's taken seriously. And uh, but we have to realize, yeah, the heat is coming. And, and, and my particular fear, and well, many people work in this field, is that if we get an extreme heat event combined with an elongated electricity outage, where the fans and the air conditioning don't work, and particularly in, in apartment buildings that tend to be hot to begin with if, if they don't have central air, uh, this is when people can die in the hundreds. And, and for example, for in, in Toronto, uh, the greater Toronto area, and, and I'm not picking on Toronto, but this, this would be similar in other cities, but this is the one for which I have data. We have 500,000 people living in older apartments. These are greater than 30 years of age. 95% of which have no central air conditioning, so they're, they're, the buildings are hot to begin with, that are eight stories or higher, 
and only one third and one third of those buildings have no backup power to run beyond two hours of time uh, for emergency exit with the elevators. So in other words, if a major heat event hit combined with an electricity outage in these buildings, you could have an elderly couple sitting up on the 18th floor with no air conditioner working, with no fans working. If the electricity goes out in the building with no backup power, uh, water won't flow above the sixth or seventh floor. Uh, that's where it taps out under city pressure. Beyond that, you open, turn on the tap, there's no water. Yeah. So they would be up there with no water, and they may be up there with no way to get out relative to an elevator if there isn't backup power. So this is a little bit of a ticking time bomb uh, to go off. And, and again, I'm not picking on Toronto. I suspect strongly if you looked at other major cities in Canada, you'd see a similar trends. Absolutely. It is a lot to think about. And, well, we've got a window of opportunity. If we actually get motivated and do something, maybe we can mitigate some of these impacts. Dr. Blair Feltmade is head of the Intact Centre on Climate Adaptation at the University of Waterloo. Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It seems like every day there are new and even more disturbing facts coming out about Hockey Canada and the allegations of sexual assaults and the use of a fund to pay those claims. Well, over the weekend, another similar report, but this time involving members of the 2003 World Junior Hockey Team. Now, this is the report that was filed on Friday by Sandy Salerno of Global News. In a statement out today, Hockey Canada says two weeks ago their staff heard about, quote, something bad at the World 2003 World Juniors, but were given no details about what that could be until last night. That's when the organization says they were contacted by a reporter looking for comment who then filled them in on what allegedly happened, a group sexual assault involving the 2003 World Junior team. The Federation says it immediately informed Halifax Police about the allegations as it was the co-host city of the tournament that year. This comes as Hockey Canada continues to deal with the fallout related to its handling of an alleged sexual assault by the 2018 World Junior Hockey Team. Sandy Salerno. Global News. And now the federal government has announced it's also freezing the funding for Gymnastics Canada, a move that comes after more than 500 gymnasts signed an open letter alleging abuse and that the national organization failed to protect them from it. Here to talk with us more about this is Dr. Anne Pegararo, who's co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport. Good morning. Dr. Dr. Pegararo, are you there? I, I am, yes. Oh, wonderful. Um, I have to say that I wasn't entirely surprised by there being a second report uh, similar to the first one from Hockey Canada, but it is still really disturbing. Yeah, I think now we're, we're no longer in the surprise. We're kind of waiting for the next. Um, it is disturbing, and I, I, I feel like now Canadians are starting to understand um, probably two things. One, uh, we all love sport and we want it to be better. And two, that uh, the, you know, the mechanisms and and structure of sport have allowed um, these types of, I guess, incidents to be covered up, you know, and paid off, as we've seen. Or in some cases, you know, I I remember uh, back when I was in my late teens and early 20s, uh, there was a, a baseball team where, you know, one of the guys would reach out the window of a moving car and grab women who were on bicycles grab their butts and uh and you know he was brought up on charges but it all just sort of evaporated and went away yeah i think for a long time we've sort of seen what we we would call the um 
uh, exceptionalism allowed in sport, meaning that sport organizations and athletes have been uh, excused for how they govern themselves or how their their behavior is because it's sport, right? And this is just what happens inside sport. And, uh, you know, famously, there is an ex-president of the United States who, who normalized locker room talk. Um, and I think all of these things we've allowed to sort of keep snowballing a culture inside sport that, that is... Um, uh, uh, abusive that is uh, and particularly uh, misogynistic uh, when we deal with both the incidents with Hockey Canada but also abusive that we've seen in gymnastics. Well, yeah, and now we have this uh, this funding freeze for Gymnastics Canada, and it seems like, well, there was a move to protect the reputation of certain athletes, allegedly, because none of this has actually been proven in court. There, there seems like there was no move to protect other athletes. Yeah, that's that's the interesting um, thing I think Canadians are probably grappling with again, right? We have stars or budding stars in these young male hockey players that are protected, and yet we hear stories of seven-year-old gymnasts, young girls getting abused. And so where where is the duty of care uh, inside of our sports system, and, and why are we only applying it to certain individuals? Well, and all of this coming after, you know, the bombshell that came out from U.S. gymnastics and the allegations of sexual abuse by Dr. Larry Nasser, first at Michigan State, then at the National Gymnastics Program. Um, you start to wonder why a lot of these organizations in Canada, if you've got those bombshells going off in the States, maybe we've got to take a look at our own organization. Maybe something's been going on behind the scenes that either the executive didn't know about or they did. Yeah, and, you know... I think that's that's a great question. <laughs> that's a great point to did they know and they thought that they were I mean obviously Hockey Canada knew and they they had a, a mechanism to bury it, which was money. Um, but yeah, I think all of our Canadian national sport organizations and provincial sport organizations and community clubs right now need to be taking a hard look at themselves and saying, you know, uh, what what are what's happening inside of our club, our team, our organization, um, because the shoe is gonna drop for most of them. There's more coming. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got 500 signatures to an open letter about Jim Canada. This can't be the first indication that the organization had of abuse. No, and I know there's been other investigations. There's been uh, coaches suspended um, in, in cases that have gone to court. So it's not the first for them. Um, and obviously, now we're learning that the 2018 team incident was not the first for Hockey Canada either. Um, and so, you know, I think maybe as, as Canadians, we got to ask ourselves, we value sport. We see it as a big part of our society. We want our children to be in sport. But do we want them to be in this sport system? Well, yeah, I mean, um, we found out through the last set of hearings. And I mean, Hockey Canada is being uh, called up on the carpet uh, in front of a parliamentary committee again this week. But in the last set of hearings, we found out that this fund that had been used um, to pay the, um, uh, the civil case with regards to this woman who lodged the complaint about the 2018 team. Um, this fund had been used oh, maybe once or twice a year. Yeah. And and even more egregious is that we found out that the funds are are coming from from fees that, that people are paying for their children to play this sport under the guise of insurance, right? So this is the insurance. That's usually against a physical harm happening to you as a participant, not for the fact that a high performance athlete may, uh, you know, actually uh, harm another individual and you need to cover it up. So, 
that for me, um, you know, if I was a parent in the system would be quite concerning that I have to pay these fees. And now I hear that the fees are being used a couple of times a year to deal with these types of incidents. Well, and, you know, one of the things that stuck with me was those registration fees are also for girls hockey. Yes, <laughs> that's an excellent point. And and also we need to take a look at what's happening with Hockey Canada. We're losing, you know, the sponsors are are, are drawing themselves away from the world juniors caught up in all this is going to be the women's national team. Where's the funding? Where's the sponsors and the support for them going? Are they going to lose that? And then, you know, we've talked about this before in the show, all the strides we're making in gender equity, are those going to be impacted by uh, the decisions made inside that organization? And is one of the reasons why women's hockey may not have been getting the same kind of funding as men's because, well, you know, costs have to be cut because they're paying out from this fund. So it's women's hockey that's, that's taking the hit. Right. Could you imagine if we invested $15 million into women's hockey, the changes we would see? They would be pretty astounding. I know, uh, I know some people that are involved in, uh, in rowing at elite levels, uh, one of whom was a coach of the uh, Canadian women junior hockey t- or, uh, rowing team. And they had always complained that, you know, even though the women's national team was doing great at the Olympics, great on the world stage, they weren't getting the same funding as the men's team. And they weren't doing as well. And that inequity, you can't ignore. No, and we're seeing it play out right now in Canada soccer, if we want to talk another organization that's under a lot of pressure from their from their players, right? We're, you know, the men's team qualifies for the first time in, in since the 80s, but the women have been qualifying and winning and bringing revenue in. And now we really start to peel back the layers in there and realize that the governance in that organization has kept the money from the players. Yeah, we were uh, paying a lot of attention to uh, the CONCACAF uh, series where the Canadian women's soccer team did phenomenally well. Absolutely. And if you look at what happened in the American, so the Americans beat us, sadly, <laughs> but they actually got a payday from that, those women. Now under their new deal where they're they're sharing, I think the, the, the story was they each got about $120,000, which is appropriate because of the revenue they're bringing in from winning in the CONCACAF. So that type of inequity, um, you know, is is still prevalent in our 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 sports system and rowing and soccer. Um, now we're seeing it in hockey because the money's diverted to to dealing with other issues. Now, one of the reasons why uh, the federal funding for Gym Canada has been suspended is because apparently uh, they've been taking some time to sign on to the new Office of Sports Integrity Commissioner. Yeah, you know, what I do see about what's happening right now, while it's it's awful and the stories we're hearing, I do see a minister uh, of sport who's willing to make um, organizations come into line in some ways. And so this independent um, Office of Sport Integrity that's just started in June, um, I'm sure is getting flooded right now with a lot of reports, but that's a first step in terms of um, organizations need to sign on to this independent outside entity where um, uh, claims and uh, can be in, filed and investigations can happen. And then the second thing that she's done is she's willing to use the economic lever of freezing funding. You know, it, we understand that gymnastics is the, Canada is the overarching group if their funding gets hit, they're going to start making the provincial sport organizations and clubs come into line. So I am cautiously optimistic that this sport minister gets that the problem is large and is willing to take some big steps. How close are you paying attention to the Hockey Canada hearings and how, uh, what kind of attention are you going to be paying to the hearings this week? 
Uh, I'll probably be tuned in. Um, the last ones were hard to watch, uh, watching them dance around answering. And now we are getting indications that potentially they did lie under oath last time they were up there indicating that they didn't know who the athletes were, but they do know, apparently. I think they're going to be, it's going to be a hot seat for the Hockey Canada, but for hockey in general, because there's lots of expanded individuals being drawn into this now in the Canadian Hockey League, etc. So um, I'll be like, a, I'm sure other Canadians watching this, um, with with one eye kind of like closed because of the things we're going to hear. I, I think it's interesting that, and I'm really grateful that we're speaking with you, uh, because with the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport, um, one of the things that we really want to see is a safe place for people to be able to play. Yes, and we know that most abuse um, in sport happens to women and girls. You know, gender-based violence predominantly happens um, to one gender. I'm not discounting the Graham James type situations in hockey, but it predominantly happens to um, young women and girls in sport. And so any steps towards uh, gender equity and, you know, uh, more women in leadership, more women on boards, more women involved in sport, uh, more diverse individuals will start to help shine light on this and change the mechanisms for the abuse that's happening mostly, again, to young girls and women. Even though this is a, a very painful and disturbing thing that we're going through with uh, what has been our national sport for so long, um, perhaps this is an opportunity to really shine a spotlight on what has been going on and make improvements for the future. Yeah, I think that uh, I think we could see this as a reckoning for Canadian sport. I, I feel that, um, you know, if you if you're listening, I think there's a lot of hockey fans that are um rightfully disgusted by what they're learning about the hockey players um and maybe they knew it but now they really know it and so i think we're seeing a reckoning that that both from both from the government side we're going to have some changes being forced down but from us as the canadians in their society i think we're starting to demand better from our sport organizations we're in conversation with dr ann pegarero who's co-director of the national research network for gender equity in sports is it possible now that we've had this, um, this, well, basically the 500 signatures to the, uh, the open letter about uh, Jim Canada and that it needs to do more to protect its athletes, it needs to at least sign on to this new Office of Sports Integrity Commissioner. Um, are we going to see, do you think, an expansion of all of this into an even uh, greater investigation of all sport? I feel we might be running that way. You know, if you followed it sort of since January of this year, if we just take that as, you know, 2020, we've seen athletes in rowing. uh, We've seen athletes in bobsled and skeleton. We've seen athletes in rugby all come forward and talk about the um, toxic culture inside their sport, the abuse, the unsafe work and training environment that they're, they're in. So I feel like we are hitting that tipping point where we need to take a hard look at how our system is structured how we fund sport, um, the win-at-all-cost mentality we've built into into sport in Canada, and and maybe this great reckoning is going to happen. Yeah, I, I'm I'm wondering if uh, the toxic culture is part of the reason why there hasn't been uh, as much gender equity in sport as perhaps there should be. I think if you talk to women in sport, they tell you that's exactly why they haven't. You know, uh, when we talk to women who work in sport, um, it, it, sometimes they're the only woman in a room, and and you can imagine what that experience is like for them on a regular basis. Um, and so, I do think that we've seen it, and I do think that women have, have conformed in some ways to survive. But now there's a chance for um, for us to get their voices heard and to actually make some changes in in you know in coaching and administrating. Um, all those levels are going to have to be looked at. 
I, I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but I think, you know, to make strides uh, in changing this, you do need more women in all of the rooms so that there's another set of eyes taking a look at stuff. Uh, yes, exactly. You know, when 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 Hockey Canada <laughs> two years ago put out a picture of their board of governors, um, and you can imagine what it looked like. It was it was essentially uh, 12, I think, um, white male individuals in suits. And, and they they put out the tagline, the Hockey Canada board comes from all walks of Canadian life. And everybody said, uh, I think you're you're overstepping. That's not true. And so they, they immediately had to backtrack. And now they've added, you know, three individuals, I think two women and, and an individual from um, uh a racialized background so they've tried to to but that they've only been there one year those individuals can't change this and now they're embroiled in this entire um scandal that we're seeing and so yeah we need to have women we need diverse individuals in the room so that we don't all look the same when we make a decision i'm sorry i'm still stuck on that facepalm moment of this is coming from all walks of life i mean only people who still fit that profile would think that that is okay as a PR move to put out. And it just, I think, goes to show you how insular the culture was in their organization, right? That they can put that kind of a statement out by the board, that they can grow a fund to $15 million to deal with, um, you know, sexual assault claims. They've, this culture, these are all like signposts of what's happening inside that organization. Dr. Pegararo, um, if there are other organizations out there, not just on the elite level, um, is it time for them to take a, a good, long, third-party look at what's been going on and to ask some of those tough questions? I, I agree. I think it's time that we got some different eyes into the Canadian sports system. There is one or two companies that I keep seeing their name popping up being, uh, and gymnastics shows one of them. Um, to do a governance review and that they're going to be better. And it's like, you're using the same company that's already been evaluating every other sport organization and the change hasn't happened. We need to bring in people who don't necessarily come from sport to take a look at how are we building our culture? How do we build the structures of these uh, organizations so we can actually change them? And that, I think, is uh, going to take a long time. I heard um, uh, somebody in a different context talking about culture change within an organization, that uh, their culture had become toxic, and they were suggesting that it would be decades in order to change the culture. Yeah, I think it it can take a long time. I think there's bolder moves. Uh, You know, if if the entire organization was uh, set upside down in terms of actual people losing their jobs. I mean, this is a little surprising to me right now with Hockey Canada that no one's lost their job yet. Um, You know, in a a corporate world, they would have. They would find the people who were responsible or at least deem them responsible and they would have terminated them. So I think you can accelerate the change by removing um, individuals. I think they need a broad renewal of their board. I I think that... um, they're going to have a long road back building trust with Canadians, but uh, but they can start by making some pretty bold moves now. Well, I've been hearing more and more, and not just from women, that uh, maybe what has to happen with Hockey Canada is that the whole thing be dismantled and it uh, be rebuilt from the ground up. Maybe that has to happen at Gym Canada as well. I think there's a few of our NSOs that are in that situation. You know, uh, I think gymnastics, because we know the Larry Nasser situation is is such a shadow over gymnastics period that 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 
it probably needs that kind of a rebuild. Hockey Canada, to me, for sure, should be rebuilt. And, you know, I do feel for people who are in these organizations who are trying to do the right thing and, and building their career in them. But the leadership has taken you to a point where, I, like you said, if it's going to take decades to change the culture, um, do we have that time? Do we have that time in sport to let this keep happening? Absolutely. I really wanted to thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. I want to thank you for this conversation. I think the more that we can get it out there and people as, you know, regular Canadians like us can start thinking about what role can they do to demand change in our sports system. Yeah, because I know a lot of parents who have kids uh, that'll be registered for hockey pretty soon. And maybe some of those questions should be asked at the time that you pay that fee. Exactly. Dr. Ann Pegarero is co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport. Our guest this morning on The Bill Kelly Show. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.